Marty, why are you wearing that gun? You're not considering going up against Tannen tomorrow. Doc, tomorrow morning I'm going back to the future with you. But if Buford Tannen comes looking for trouble, I'm going to be ready for him. You heard what that son of a bitch called me last night. Marty, you can't go losing your judgment every time someone calls you a name. That's exactly what causes you to get into that accident in the future. What? What about my future? I can't tell you. It might make things worse. To save Doc Brown, Marty uses the DeLorean to time travel to the Old West. This week, we wrap up our Back to the Future trilogy by talking about the highest number there is, the guy in ZZ Top that doesn't have a beard, and what you shouldn't say when you walk into a store. We're thinking fourth dimensionally as we find out if Back to the Future Part 3 stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone, this is James Brief, and Al, Al, Al Noah, you gotta come back with me. Back where? Back to the podcast. I mean, I do every week. No, 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 Al, you and your wife Courtney turn out fine. It's your podcast, Al. Something's gotta be done about the Back to the Future Part 3 podcast. Oh no, what do we have to do? We have to make it amazing. Oh, pressure's on. I think we can do that. Well, actually, we did it horribly. So, we actually have used a DeLorean to go back in time, and now we are going to fix what once went wrong. All right, let's do it. Well, you know, we always knew we were going to do the Back to the Future trilogy, and we're on our final episode of this amazing series of movies. Uh, We both very much enjoyed part one and part two. Part three tends to get less love. I think people generally think a little bit less of it. But before we get into Back to the Future Part 3, I would be remiss if I did not mention one of my all-time favorite Saturday Night Live skits. I mean, really ever, which is an obscure skit that maybe not a lot of people know. But I have quoted to you, James, and our friend Mailer, and I don't know, a handful of other people throughout the years. And It involves Kevin Nealon on an elevator with Michael J. Fox, and Michael J. Fox is playing Michael J. Fox in this skit, and Kevin Nealon is just saying, oh man, I loved you in that movie, Back to the Future, and I love that other movie you were in, Back to the Future 2, and there was that other movie you were in, Uh, what's it called, what's it called, and Michael J. Fox is like, Back to the Future 3. And Kevin Neal's like, yes, that's it. That's the one. And then Kevin Nealon just starts singing the theme song. Gotta go back in time. Remember? Remember that? And Michael J. Fox is like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. I'm not doing it justice. It's just very, very funny. And any time I think of Back to the Future or Michael J. Fox or Kevin Nealon, I hear in my head Kevin Nealon singing in the very high-pitched way that he did. Gotta go back in time. And uh, I was looking for it today to see if I could, like, link to it. And uh, I couldn't find the video of it on YouTube. And Peacock has the old seasons of SNL, but I couldn't find that skit. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just lost to the ether somewhere. 
You know, it's not like uh, Comedy Central is running Saturday Night Live reruns like they used to. Remember in like the 90s, you could just put on Comedy Central, you'd catch a random repeat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't do that anymore. Maybe Lorne used a DeLorean to go back in time and erase all of the copies. I would hope that he wouldn't do that. Um, just one little epilogue to that story. Once, when I was working at NBC, I was in an elevator with Kevin Nealon, and I wanted to do that thing to him from that skit and be like, hey, Kevin Nealon, I'm a big fan. I remember that skit that you did. Remember that skit when you said, going to go back in time? And it would have been like really meta and brilliant and like bringing his character to life in a way that he would have totally appreciated. But I chickened out. I didn't do it. I was nervous. I thought maybe I'd get in trouble or something. That's an honest-to-goodness regret of mine that I didn't do it. Ironically, if you were encompassing Marty McFly and you were realizing you were chicken, then therefore, if you were Back to the Future Part 2 Marty, you would have gone through with it because nobody, including Alan Noah, calls Alan Noah chicken. That is a good point. But let's get right into Back to the Future 3. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is the conclusion to the Back to the Future trilogy. When this movie starts out, Marty McFly, uh, we find him trapped in 1955 from the events of Back to the Future Part 2. And he finds a 70-year-old letter from Doc Brown, which informs Marty that Doc Brown is alive in 1885. Now, despite Doc's warnings not to try and rescue him, Marty travels back to the Old West. And while the two of them hatch a plan to return to 1985, Doc falls in love with a schoolteacher, and Marty winds up doing with Biff's great-grandfather, Mad Dog Tannen. Will Marty and Doc get stuck in the past, or will they successfully make their way back to the future one last time? Ooh, I wonder. Uh, I, I don't really wonder, because I've seen this movie a million times. And I also know that this movie did well at the box office, but not as well as the first two. Yeah, well, if you remember, the last film came out in late 1989, and right when the film ended, right when the to-be-concluded words flashed across the screen, you immediately went to a Back to the Future Part 3 trailer, because it was already completed. So this film came out a mere six months later, on May 25th, 1990, over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, It opened at number one, grossed $23 million over the weekend, grossing $87 million total and $243 million worldwide. So, I mean, this was a monster box office smash. I mean, not as big as the first two films. This was the uh, least of the trilogy. But, I mean, this film was practically, like, it was an add-on to part two. So, it was, like, free money for Universal. Yeah, I read something that by filming part two and part three concurrently, it saved Universal, like, $15 million. Which, to me, is almost, like, hard to believe because they don't have a lot of set pieces that overlap very much. I mean, it's a lot of the same cast, I guess. I believe they filmed a lot of part two on the Universal backlot, and three was filmed in, like, Arizona, so it couldn't have been that convenient. I think you're still, you know, getting a contractor for a makeup team for a total of 90 days instead of two 60-day shoots. I've never done a movie, but I would have to imagine that's what it is. That makes sense. 
you know, it's interesting. All three films in the Back to the Future franchise, they open up in Back to the Future Part 1. Obviously, Part 1 opens with Part 1, but Part 2 opens with uh, Marty opening the garage door and seeing Jennifer. And Part 3 opens up in 1955 at the end of Back to the Future Part 1, when the DeLorean is uh, about to, uh, you know, cross the telephone wire and be sent back to 1985. Right. And all three movies have that same scene of Marty going from 1955 to 1985 with the lightning rod and everything, because obviously that's the climax of part one. We see it again in part two at the end when uh, Marty comes running around the corner, and then we see that moment again in part three. We see that one scene three different times in this trilogy. And we also get the Alan Silvestri score three times in the trilogy, so I will never complain about seeing one of the best scenes in motion picture history multiple times. Right. And so at the very end of part two, Marty runs up to the 1955 doc and shows him the letter that he got from the other doc who is now living in 1885. That doc passes out and then he wakes up in his home that Marty's brought him to and they read the letter. Doc does the gag of holding the magnifying glass while he's reading the letter and he holds the magnifying glass in front of his mouth and then his mouth looks really big. That's just a very silly little thing, but that always makes me laugh. That's a clean and easy gag. And it fits this wacky, cartoon-like character, which is Doc Brown. I don't think it would work well with uh, Marty. Right, right. But so what we find out through the letter is that Doc was sent back in time to 1885. He's alive and well. He likes living in the Old West. He can't fix the DeLorean to travel back to visit with his pal Marty But he leaves the DeLorean in a cave. It's going to be untouched for 70 years so that now in 1955, Marty and this stock will be able to repair it. He leaves detailed instructions and he says, don't come back and rescue me. Just take the machine back to 1985, then destroy it. This machine can be used for bad. It's not worth it. I've always wanted to live in the Old West. No unnecessary time travel. Uh, There's a funny line where 1955 doc is looking at some parts he's like oh no wonder this thing broke this says it's made in japan and marty says what are you talking about all the best stuff is made in japan and that is an obvious statement of fact to 1985 marty but to 1955 doc that blows his mind yeah it's a great little uh you know little history lesson there And I like the little details that they put in. Like, they didn't have to do this stuff. Like, things like uh, Doc Brown drained all the fluids out of the car in the 19th century because he knew, you know, a car just sitting idly in a cave over, you know, over a half a century is going to, it's only going to decay the parts. And these subtle details, I think it's really nice of both the screenwriter and I think it's very considerate of Doc Brown, too, because, you know, he has to help Marty get back to 1985. Sure. And uh, Marty uh, convinces 1955 Doc that he's not going to go back to 1985, but he's going to go to 1885 and rescue Doc Brown. And the reason that uh, Doc is sort of playing along with this is because Einstein, or rather uh, 1955 Doc's dog, not Einstein. Copernicus. Copernicus, yes. Uh, He starts barking and he leads the two of them to a gravestone. And they say that the tombstone says, uh, here lies Doc Brown killed a few days after this letter is written and it says 
killed over the matter of $80 and left behind by his beloved Clara. So he's killed over $80, and who the hell is Clara? And, you know, there's no mention of this Clara in this letter, and yet he's supposed to be in love with this woman. So very weird. Right. And in the letter, Doc says, don't come to rescue me in the past. But Marty decides that he has to go and save him because he dies six days later. It's not like he gets to live out his years in the Old West. He only lives for a few more days. And 1955 Doc goes along with it because we have seen that Doc is all about don't change the space-time continuum. But when it comes to altering the space-time continuum to protect himself— He is willing to make an exception because in part one, he rips up the letter, but then he does tape it back together. And it's a good thing he does because he doesn't want to get shot. So same thing in this movie. Doc doesn't want to get shot. So he allows Marty to go back to 1885 to help rescue him. Or as Doc says, well, I figured what the hell. Exactly. So Doc gets everything ready for the time machine and he's going to send Marty back to 1885 They go to this abandoned drive-in movie theater that's far away from Hill Valley. And the reason that they do that is because Doc says, well, if you're going to go back in time, you want to go someplace empty, wide open. You don't want to go back in time and crash into a tree, which is funny because that's what happens in part one when Marty goes back in time and crashes into the pine tree. Um, And then it's also a gag because at this movie theater, Marty is driving straight towards a mural depicting an Indian attack. But as Doc tells him, you have to think fourth dimensionally. When he hits 88 miles an hour, those Indians aren't going to be there. And that's true, except that there are real Indians that are attacking. And Marty has to drive away from them, except there is an arrow that hits the DeLorean and ruptures the gas line. Right. And there's enough gas for him to stash the car away in a cave There's a quick little bear attack there. So Marty runs out of the cave. He trips and he's knocked out. And once again, just like two other parts in the trilogy, he wakes up to the sound of a reassuring voice, which is the sound of his mother Lorraine's voice. But it turns out it's not Lorraine. It's their ancestor. And it's interesting how Marty's ancestors both resemble the women and men's side of the family. You you know? Right, right. (laughs) Marty McFly's great great-grandfather is played by Michael J. Fox, and his great-grandmother is played by Leah Thompson, but that wouldn't be, right? Because, like, on that side of his family, his great-great-grandmother wouldn't look like his mother. Oh, it could be one of them, but it can't be both of them, or it's highly unlikely to be both of them. Although, maybe this is a kind of an incestuous family that the same two families keep getting together. I mean, it wouldn't be the first case of incestuous relationships in Back to the Future. I mean, pretty much the entire plot of the first movie. But also, Zemeckis said that maybe it's just that the McFly men are attracted to women who have this particular look or something. And really, the the reason why it is Leah Thompson is because Leah Thompson was in Back to the Future 1 and 2, and they wanted to give her a role in 3. And they like her, and this was where they put her. And you're probably just not supposed to really think about it too much. Well, that's actually an interesting theory by Robert Zemeckis, because 
if you squint your eyes, Lorraine Bennis as a teenager kind of looks like uh, Jennifer, at least from part one. They are somewhat similar, I guess just brunette Caucasian women. But uh, but either way, Marty McFly, uh, he's taken in by Seamus McFly. And Seamus, he's, uh, he's a very wise, recent immigrant to America. And he has all this uh, Mark Twain-like uh, wisdom for Marty. And he tells him where to find uh, town. So Marty heads into Hale Valley, and he goes straight for the saloon. And straight out of the uh, joke from part one, when he asks for a Pepsi free and a tab, he goes to the bartender and he asks for an ice water. You can't get an ice water in 1885. Right. And also, like in part one, everyone is commenting on the ridiculous nature of Marty's clothes. This time around, he was deliberately wearing Old West clothes, but what people in 1955 thought were authentic Old West clothes which were not really what people in 1885 actually wore and they're very colorful and like kind of pastel and it's not the real thing. Well, think about it. What was Doc probably basing his ideas on of what a cowboy looked like? Old Western movies. Or for him, Western movies. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, Western movies and how were those filmed? Black and white. So he doesn't know that cowboys didn't wear pink. You know, I, I wouldn't know anything about what people actually wore in any other time period. I would assume everyone looks like they're going to a toga party in all of ancient Greece. We only know these things from the stereotypical like posters and cartoons we see. That's true. That is a good point. But as Marty is in this bar... He encounters Mad Dog Tannen. It's played by Thomas Wilson, who played Biff and Griff. And it's Biff's great-grandfather. We saw a little bit of this guy in part two when Marty was watching the uh, retrospective on Biff video in the alternate 1985. And Marty's like, oh, I know you. You're Mad Dog Tannen. But Mad Dog doesn't like to be called Mad Dog, and he starts shooting at Marty. Marty's trying to avoid the bullets, so it's like that thing of like, dance, dance, while Mad Dog's shooting at the ground, and Marty starts doing the moonwalk, which I don't believe is Michael J. Fox actually doing the moves. But, you know, it's still an impressive moonwalk. And unlike what happened in 1 and 2, there's no, like, zany skateboard or hoverboard chase around town this time tannin gets marty puts a rope around his neck and is going to lynch him in front of the new uh clock tower courthouse which is being built but luckily doc comes by in just the right time uh and is able to shoot him down with like a rifle that he's fitted with this like futuristic for the time scope and he's able to to shoot down the rope Right, and this references what film that we reviewed, Al? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which we saw with our friend Nathaniel Gold. Yeah, that's another film where a guy was being hung, and then from a you know distance, the guy shoots the rope. Um, I give them credit for not doing a third chase. I think it was great in part two that they changed it up, but I am really happy that they didn't take some kids like little pony carriage and any like rides it around and i think it was very good that they didn't do it even though a, a lesser uh, screenwriter would have done that yeah i agree one more thing i love about this scene um mad dog tannin is like what's your name and he's really trying to sound like a tough guy and he goes clint eastwood and everyone laughs at him because like that's the stupidest name i've ever heard in my life 
Right. To someone from 1985, that sounds like the name of someone who is a scary gunslinger in the Old West. But to someone in 1885, it does not have that connotation, which also, I believe, from the good, the bad, and the ugly, Clint Eastwood's character didn't have a name. And wasn't he famously the man with no name in a bunch of those movies? That's the man with no name trilogy. Right. So, I mean, having any name at all, I guess, is uh, not intimidating. Apparently, the producers of this movie did ask Clint Eastwood if they could use his name. I wonder if they asked Calvin Klein for part one. Well, anyway, but apparently Clint Eastwood was honored by the homage and he agreed to it. Good for you, Clint. But once Doc and Marty are reunited, Marty tells Doc about his imminent death. He shows him the picture and Doc is confused because he doesn't know anyone named Clara. He does know that Tannen wants him to pay $80 because Doc is working as a blacksmith and he shooed Tannen's horse, but then the horse threw the shoe, and so then in anger, Tannen shot the horse, and now he thinks that Doc owes him money for the horse and the bottle of whiskey that he dropped, which also kind of echoes part one where Biff crashes George's car and then blames George for it. So Doc is like, oh, well, if I would known he was going to shoot me in the back, maybe I would have just paid him off. And it seems like maybe he could still just do that, but, you know, now there's bad blood with Marty and everything. So they're trying to figure out how they can get the DeLorean back home to 1985. And they have this problem of the busted gas line because there aren't gas stations in 1885. And Doc solved the problem of not needing 1.21 gigawatts with a bolt of lightning because he invented Mr. Fusion on the DeLorean. But it still needs to get to 88 miles an hour. And to do that, it needs old-fashioned gasoline. Or does it? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the same plot as part one, where you just are missing a component that's not invented or, you know, not readily available at that time. And uh, they try to use some really uh, high-proof alcohol. Did he say it's a diesel engine? On the DeLorean? I'm not sure. I don't know, what, but he has some reason why he thinks that it might work, but it doesn't. They actually try to use horses, which I think is a little silly because I think that Doc Brown would have easily been able to calculate that no matter how many horses you have, you can't get to 90 miles per hour. Yeah, I'm okay with it because you know it's not going to work, but you have to try. You have to, like, do it anyway. It's a great shot, though, just of, like, six horses. It almost looks like a dog sleigh, and they're dragging the DeLorean. It's great. Yes, I agree. But they realize that they can't pull the DeLorean, but maybe they could push it. And the way that they could push it is with the train. And, you know, they can hijack the train so it's not carrying all the freight behind it. And they think they should be able to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour if they go down this one abandoned piece of track. But the track isn't finished. There's like a bridge that hasn't been completed yet. So Marty's like, well, there goes that idea. But Doc says again, no, no, you have to think fourth dimensionally. There will be track in 1985, and so you will be able to just drive straight across, and it will work out fine. Now, I know how this movie ends, but I would think that this Doc should be thinking like the 1955 Doc, who is worried about Marty driving into a tree. If you're driving on a train track, there could be a train that you're going to drive right into, and... Ultimately, you know, there is a train on the track and it doesn't kill Marty, but like that should be a concern. And 
1885 doc never mentions it at all. I've thought about exactly what you've said there. Why didn't he send him back at 2.15 in the morning when I guess, you know, guessing all things equal, there's going to be less trains going through a residential neighborhood yeah. at 2 in the morning. And um, there's a scene in Back to the Future Part 1 where right after Marty goes back to 1985, he immediately crashes into the movie theater, which is which seems to be like 30 feet in front of where he jumps back uh, to the future. And he'd have been traveling 90 miles per hour. So maybe, maybe on the night that Marty's in 1955 in part three talking to Doc, maybe he mentions to him, oh, how did it go going back to 85? Oh, great, Doc. But just so you know, I wound up crashing into the movie theater and uh, maybe I need a little more room. And maybe this gets him to think a little more like when he's like, oh, you're not going to crash into that uh, billboard full of Native Americans. You'll be past that. And now I'm, I'm thinking more like after you jump and because he's, he's very cognizant on that. I was thinking the same thing even in part Part one, Doc Brown travels straight to the future, driving down Marty McFly's street. He doesn't fly. Remember, first when he drives, how does he know that street's still there in 30 years? Like, if I were Doc Brown, I probably would have gone to the middle of almost like the desert, just guessed that that'll still be desert. Yeah, it is a very tricky thing. And Doc is not always great at it. But while Doc and Marty are like looking at this track line, they see a woman who is in a carriage and her horses are spooked and she's in real trouble and they go and rescue her. Doc really rescues her. Usually it's Marty who's doing the rescuing, but Doc saves this woman and her name is Clara Clayton. And we know that she is the school teacher who's coming into town. We know that because earlier in the movie, there was a moment where someone knocked on Doc's door and said, hey, remember when you volunteered to pick up that school teacher? Well, she's coming. Her name is Clara. So we we have a little bit of context on who this person is. I did think it was weird, though, that Doc went to, like, this town meeting and volunteered to pick up a school teacher. Like, if he's there in the Old West living out his days, he should know to really not interfere with much. You know, I understand why he wouldn't just want to live as, like, a hermit alone and isolated, which would probably be the best thing to do for the space-time continuum. He wants to, you know, have a shop in town and be a blacksmith and go to the saloon and stuff. I get that. But if someone asks to volunteer to pick up a teacher, shouldn't he not do that? Shouldn't he really try to do as little as possible? My guess is that he did, and then they kind of strong-armed him. Like, oh, come on, Doc. You're not doing anything. We got this teacher. We just need you to ride the horse out and pick her up. And, okay. And, you know, he figures he'll just not say anything. But he's going to be pretty smitten by this woman as we know from the tombstone. However, when he meets her, it is quite an exciting first meeting. It's not like when, uh, I believe you said, uh, you met your, your lovely wife in a, in, a, in a lab, I believe? Yes. Well, this is almost the same kind of meeting. He met his beloved as she almost uh, fell down a gorge. Right, and they fall in love. It's love at first sight, which Doc thinks is ridiculous because he's scientific and no no such thing could possibly be possible. But, you know, speaking of that, in part two, there's a great reference. Uh, Doc says something, and he's saying uh, all the things he wants to see. He always wants to see the Old West. He makes a reference there. And then maybe after all of that, I'll finally figure out the most mysterious thing in the whole universe. Women. That is a characteristic of Doc Brown that's not covered in part one, 
But I think that's a fair thing, that Doc Brown has basically been a loser his entire life. He has uh, squandered his entire family fortune on failed projects over and over and over. He's seen as a crackpot. He's a total recluse. He has one friend who's like a kid, you know, but finds redemption in the fact that he finally not only invents something that works, but invents possibly the most amazing invention in, in the history of science. Like that human has fulfilled his life journey and i think that it's totally fair that he wants to pursue uh women and i say this because i remember one thing i didn't like about part three was that it was like a love story and i wasn't thinking in a way of like i don't want girls in this no i didn't mind girls in it i i loved lorraine as a great character in in part one and in part two but um i want it to be more of an adventure and now that i uh, watch this i do see that there is a room for a love story it makes sense for this character yes and it's about time that doc had a love interest right and we see more about doc and we've watched marty be the hero for two movies and it's Cool that you get to see Doc fall in love. Also, it's kind of cool that you see two older characters fall in love, which is not a thing that you see in movies all the time. It is a little weird about, like, the age difference. Christopher Lloyd is 15 years older than Mary Steenburgen in real life, but you just have no idea how old Doc is in these movies. Like, is he 40? Is he 60? Is he 80? It's kind of hard to tell. But whatever. It doesn't matter. They are instantly smitten with each other. Uh, one other thing I love in their uh, in their little courtship is Clara, she's a school teacher, and she's very smitten when Doc says he's a scientist. And she says, oh, well, what kind of science do you study? And his reply, it's such a great line and such a great Doc Brown line. He says, oh, I'm a student of all sciences. But he uses the word student. That's such a Doc Brown thing to say, that he would be the kind of person that would say, oh, I've never learned everything. I'm always a student. You know, that's the kind of thing like a teacher says. I really like that. Yeah, it's great. There's a moment where Clara comes to Doc's barn and she's asking him to fix her telescope. And right before that, Doc has made this model of their time travel thing, and he apologizes that it's not quite to scale. And in part one, Lorraine comes and interrupts them, and Doc is, like, standing awkwardly in the background. This time, Clara comes and interrupts, and Marty is standing awkwardly in the background. And it's funny. It's it's like a nice twist on what we've seen. And then she says that she really hopes that she'll see Doc that night at, like, the big town festival. We see that the sheriff of this town is a Strickland, who Marty encountered as the principal, but apparently his grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever, was the uh, the sheriff. And Tannen tries to go into this festival with all of his guns, and the sheriff makes him check his iron, which is a cool way of saying, leave your guns at the front. But Tannen's able to sneak one little pistol in, and he's going to shoot Doc in the back because of this $80. And it's two days before the date that was on the tombstone, but apparently this tiny little bullet and this tiny little gun, it takes two days to kill you. So this is when Doc is going to be shot, even though it's not when he's going to die. So Marty saves him by throwing a pie plate at 
Tannen's gun and, you know, sends it flying. A pie plate, Al? You didn't notice what it was? Well, it was a pie plate. The name brand was Frisbee. Frisbee pies, which is really where Frisbees came from. Right, 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 right. So I was right to call it a pie plate. But yeah, you're right. Um, And then Tannen gets mad at Marty and challenges him to a duel. Marty's like not interested. But then Tannen calls him Yella, which is the same as Chicken, which Marty can't stand. So he agrees to duel him. And who's watching all of this? But Seamus McFly, who has more words of wisdom for Marty and says, you don't have to do whatever someone says if they question you. My brother did that and he got into a fight and he died. So maybe that's not smart. Yeah, and uh, he also has a talk with uh, Doc Brown, who also says, you know, this whole chicken thing, this really is a problem for you, Marty, and this is what gets you into that big car accident that ruins your future. And Marty's like, what? And Doc's like, uh, never mind. There's been a couple hints in part two, especially, uh, and uh, in part three, that there's going to be some kind of car accident. However, we don't find out about this car accident until later in the film. Right. And then Marty looks at the picture of the tombstone that he took in 1955, and the date is still there, but the name is gone. It doesn't say, here lies uh, Doc Brown. So it seems like someone is going to be killed in two days' time at this duel, but we don't know who it will be yet. And when they look at the picture, Marty says, great, Scott, and Doc says, this is heavy. Like, they switch it. They switch their catchphrases. Also, while we're talking about the town festival scene, we have to mention the cameo by ZZ Top, which is a more recognizable cameo than Huey Lewis in the first movie, where you could maybe not necessarily recognize that that's Huey Lewis on screen for one second. ZZ Top... They have a pretty notable look, and they have that thing where they spin the guitars around that they do in the movie. And this time they spin the drums around. It's pretty fun. Yes. Uh, Fun little bit of ZZ Top trivia. Do you know the names of the three guys in ZZ Top? No, I don't know their names. Oh, well, it's Billy Gibbons, Dusty Hill, and Frank Beard. And the one guy who doesn't have a long beard is Frank Beard. I actually only knew Dusty Hill because there's a King of the Hill episode where you find out Hank Hill is related to Dusty Hill. Oh, okay. But it's just funny. People think of ZZ Top and they think of the big long beards, but only two of the guys have the beard. And the one guy who doesn't have the beard is named Frank Beard. So there you go. And, you know, the next scene, now that he's been uh, challenged to a duel, Marty is now practicing his, uh, you know, his Clint Eastwood uh, gunslinging moves. And he's looking in a mirror. Did you notice a couple weird butt shots of Michael J. Fox? I only saw one. Um, but, yeah, like he's wearing like those old time pajamas, I guess, with the uh, trap door. Is that what you call them? <laughs> like the, the thing on your butt. So I guess you can like pull it down to go to the bathroom. But like it's. Kind of half open, and you can see his butt cheek. Yeah, yeah. Also, there's like a Rube Goldberg-like device in Doc's lab that opens up some eggs and uh, makes some bacon, which is also a callback to the very, very opening of Back to the Future 1, where there's like the big Rube Goldberg that opens up the dog food for Einstein. There's just like a lot of like, I guess today you'd call them Easter eggs, you know, like little things that refer back to the first movie. I noticed a lot more of them watching it this time. 
so Doc actually goes to Marty and says that he'd rather stay in 1885. And he's happier there. He's going to help Marty. But um, Marty convinces him. He's like, Doc, look look at all the disasters that have happened when we interfere with the past. And he basically convinces Doc that uh, he's going to come back with him. So Doc, he just wants to say goodbye to Clara one more time. He goes to her. He winds up telling her the truth because she's so heartbroken that he's going to leave. And he says he's never going to see her again. But she doesn't believe him uh, when he says he's from the future. And uh, she throws him out of the house. Doc goes to the saloon for a drink, and he passes out after a single whiskey. Right. And the funny thing is, is that he's holding the shot of whiskey while he's ranting and raving, and he's breaking his rule about not telling people about the future. He's going on and on and on about the future. And he sounds drunk, even though he has not taken a single drink. He starts talking about how in the future there will be automobiles and people won't need horses anymore. And then one of the guys in the saloon says, will people run? You won't need to run. And Doc says, oh, no, people will run, but for fun and for exercise. The old timer in the saloon is like, what kind of fun is that? And as a person who does actually run for fun and exercise, I think that's a pretty funny gag. I get it. I get why people hate that. And I actually, I remember when this came out, I actually remember thinking that I was cool because, well, probably not cool, probably the opposite of it. But I understood one of Doc's jokes at the time, which was a very obscure scientific joke. But now everyone probably would understand it. He's lamenting to the bartender about how he lost the love of his life. And the bartender knows immediately this is about a woman. And he's like, she's one in a million, huh? And he goes, no, more like one in a Googleplex. And everyone today knows what Google is. Actually, do you know why it's called Google? Um, I know what Google is. It's one followed by a hundred zeros. I don't know why they named the search engine that. Well, it's 10 to the hundredth. Uh, so actually, wouldn't it be a one followed by 101 zeros? Anyway, um, I don't know. But uh, a Googleplex is 10 to the 10th to the hundredth. So it's basically 10 to the Googleth power. Oh, so a lot. A lot, yeah. So when I was a kid, I remember I remember knowing that infinity wasn't really a number. So when someone's like, I have infinity of this. Well, I have infinity plus one. So what's the biggest number? As far as I knew, it was a Googleplex. But I guess a Googleplex plus one would be bigger. What about a Googleplex plus two? Oh, got you there. Can't think of a number higher than no, that. You figured the, the highest number. But uh, so Doc, he passes out and Marty can't find Doc. And he finally finds him in the saloon and he can't get Doc up. And without Doc, he can't really get back to the future because he needs him to help him with the train. So Marty's wasting so much time that Mad Dog, he comes to town and he's like, Eastwood, where are you, you yellow belly bastard? And this is the turning point for Marty, where he realizes that he's not going to go out and duel with Tannen because he doesn't have to. And Seamus's words got to him, and maybe he learned a lesson seeing Doc fall in love, and he just wasn't going to go through with the duel. And he's like, I don't care if he calls me names. I don't care what he thinks of me. I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I'm going home. And that's like the right character growth and development and all those things. But... 
also Tannen is right out front. So he's got to think of another way out. And he asks the bartender, you got a back door? And the bartender says, yeah, it's in the back. That's kind of funny. And they give Doc this wake-up juice, they call it, which is like Tabasco and God only knows what else. And it works. They're able to revive Doc. But Tannen's gang finds Doc and Marty in this alley For some reason, they only grab Doc and use him to, like, lure Marty out. I kind of didn't get why they weren't able to grab Marty, too. But whatever. They use Doc as, like, bait to get Marty to come out. Marty comes out of hiding, and Tannen's yelling at him, and he says, we're going to duel. And Marty says, no, I'm not going to do it. Let's just walk away. Let's settle this like men. And Tannen's like eh, all right, if you're not going to duel with me, I'll just shoot you. And he shoots him. And this also mirrors part one where Marty watches Doc get shot. And now Doc watches Marty get shot. But also like in part one, Marty is wearing a bulletproof vest, which not only was foreshadowed in the first movie, but also in part two when alternate 1985 Biff is watching a Western with Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood does this exact same thing. Right, A Fistful of Dollars, which is uh, another one of the uh, Man With No Name movies in the Man With No Name trilogy by Sergio Leone. It's a great shot. I mean, I love it. The only thing that doesn't totally make sense is why wouldn't you hear like a bing as, as he shot, but maybe not, I guess. I mean, it was covered in cloth, so maybe you wouldn't hear it. Maybe. And another thing that also kind of doesn't make much sense is that after Tannen like goes over to Marty and is like, ha ha, I killed him. What Marty does is he hits Tannen with the thing he was using as a bulletproof vest, which we see like from the earlier scene. It looks like it was like the door of like an oven or like a kiln or, or something, which I am not an expert. I don't know. But I've got to think that's iron, right? Like it would have to be something very, very heavy, right? Yeah, I assume it's some kind of iron. Right. So Marty hits Tannen with this iron door in the face. He goes down, but then he still has to punch Tannen four times to get Tannen like down, down. And I was like, man, this guy's like way tougher than Biff or Griff. You know, like it took an iron door and Four solid punches in the face. I was thinking, though, maybe Marty's fist isn't all the way healed from when it got smashed in uh, part two by uh, Principal Strickland. You know, like when he was reaching his hand to grab the almanac and then Strickland like slammed his chair onto Marty's hand. Maybe so his, his hand wasn't all the way healed. But still, he's able to get Tannen. Tannen goes down in what? A wheelbarrow full of manure. From the same guy. Well, the same family. I think. Same family, yeah, right, right. In in this movie, it's A. Jones, and in 1955, it's D. Jones, or maybe it's the other way around. But it's it's Jones family manure. There's a family name on the uh, horse dealer in 1885 that's the same as like the car dealer in 1955 and the flying car dealer in 2015. So there's a couple of jokes like that. 
And while this is all going on, Clara, she is distraught from being lied to by Doc. She thinks being lied to. And she overhears uh, on the train that happens to be the bartender there who's talking about the uh, the most heartbroken man he'd ever seen in his life. And Clara realizes they're talking about Doc and her. So she uh, pulls the emergency brake on the train and she runs back to Doc's uh, workshop, I guess. And she sees the model, including the train that says Time Machine on it and uh, not subtle however it is in brand with doc brown the kind of guy who would if he had time paint a scale model to scale and the accurate colors he would label it the time machine that's fair so uh so clara she immediately takes a a horse and she rides off towards the train because she now realizes what's going on Right. And Marty and Doc go to hijack the train or borrow it, as they say. Borrow it? They're going to send it to the bottom of a ravine. Oh, yeah. Um, But so right before they go to rob the train, Doc says, masks on. And they like put the bandanas over their face. But hearing masks on now... It just kind of makes me laugh because I say that all the time to the kids, like whenever we're going somewhere, like, all right, kids, masks on. I have to put it on for a store. I'll say things like activate mask mode or activate robber mode because that's what you look like. You look like an old wanted poster, you know? Yeah, you shouldn't say that when you're walking into a store. I say it before I walk into the store. Uh, just don't say activate robber mode before you go into a store because someone might hear you and think that you're going to rob the store. It's not necessarily a store, though. It could be like like your building's lobby. Uh, oh, okay. Still, just maybe don't say that out loud. Maybe think it or, or, or not. I don't know. And I do love uh, when they do hijack the train. And I remember that that this is in the uh, trailer. And they're like, is this a stick-up? And they go, it's a science experiment. That's a great Doc Brown line. And it's a great trailer line. Yes, it is. Um, I didn't understand, like, their division of labor as they're doing this thing, where Marty goes into the DeLorean and basically waits for Doc to, like, throw the presto logs into the fire Shouldn't they have switched that? Like, Doc's older, and Marty is young and nimble, and we see Doc, like, struggling to get from the train to the DeLorean. And, of course, for the sake of the movie's plot, we need to have Marty in the DeLorean and Doc not in the DeLorean for when Clara comes up, you know, in a few seconds. But it just seems like the obvious plan would have been if anyone needs to climb from a train into a DeLorean while they are both moving very, very fast, it should be the younger, more athletic person, right? I've never thought about that, but that's absolutely a good point. And I think there could have been a very easy line about why something, something scientific, I have to make the calculation perfect about when to throw in these logs. Like, that's all you needed. But it seems actually the opposite, where Doc has, it's like, it's a very simple color-coded thing where when we know when each of these logs will blow. I think they could have done something very simple. Yeah, and it's so simple that he throws all three logs in at once, and they're timed to go off green, yellow, red, or whatever. Like, it just seems really bizarre. But, like I say, the reason that it happens is because then Clara comes, and she starts climbing on the train, and Doc needs to go and get her and rescue her, and it kind of seems like Clara might very well die, which, you know, is realistic. I mean, this train is moving very fast. She's climbing on the outside in a dress, and, like, 
impractical shoes. And the only way that they're able to not die is for Marty to slide the hoverboard, which he still has from 2015 in the DeLorean, and slide it back. And then Doc's able to perfectly time it, catch the hoverboard, grab Clara, and they're able to sail away. But then it's a little too late for them to get on the DeLorean because now the DeLorean is going 88 miles an hour. It goes into the future before the track ends. Uh, The train in 1885 does go into the ravine and crashes, but Marty is successfully able to get to 1985. Actually, when Marty travels back to 1985, the sign next to where he is, it says Eastwood Ravine, where they said earlier it had been called uh, Clayton Ravine, named after Clara, but now it's called Eastwood Ravine. And presumably, they just assume that this Clint Eastwood guy, since no one ever saw him again, that he just perished in this uh, in this train robbery. Well, Doc might have told them that. Like, Doc presumably goes back to town, and when people are like, oh, what happened to your friend Clint Eastwood? He could say, oh, he hijacked a train and died. Right, right. So it's another cute little subtle thing, just like the Twin Pines Mall turning into a Lone Pines Mall. But uh, the other thing that happens is that the DeLorean, which is still on the tracks, as we alluded to earlier, that there very well could be a train coming at any time. There is a train that comes a minute after Marty arrives, and it completely obliterates. I love how this train, like, disintegrates this car. It doesn't total it, doesn't crush it, it disintegrates it. Right. In part two, Doc says something about, like, oh, Biff is in a... Cadillac or something, and I'm in a DeLorean, he'd tear through us like we were tinfoil. That's basically what this train does. It tears through the car like tinfoil. There is a shot of the license plate that's kind of like spinning around, which also mirrors a shot of the license plate spinning around in part one. Again, another little Easter egg kind of a thing. Marty is like, well, Doc said he wanted the time machine destroyed. It's destroyed. Marty goes and picks up Jennifer. He looks like a cowboy. He doesn't bother to change his clothes, which he probably should have, but whatever. And Jennifer is like, oh, I had the strangest dream about going to the future. But then she finds the facts in her pocket of like, you're fired from part two. And she's like, was it a dream? Maybe it wasn't. But then Needle shows up, the guy who's Marty's boss in 2015 and in real life is Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he challenges Marty to a race. And Marty seems to be going for it because Needles called him chicken, which is Marty's weakness, but only in parts two and three. They're revving their engines. But then when the light turns green, Marty guns it, but doesn't go forward. He goes in reverse. He decided he's not going to race that jerk. But all I'm thinking is, oh my God, why would he go that fast in reverse? That's also very stupid and very, very dangerous. Yeah, like once the other car speeds away, he just has to stay still. Right. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. But we realize that had Marty driven in the right lane where he was, he would have been T-boned by a Rolls Royce, which is presumably what everyone had been referencing and hurts Marty's hand. Not presumably, like Lorraine in part two says when he got hit by that Rolls Royce. It is definitely this moment. Right. So Marty has now, uh, he's grown from the character flaw that he developed in part two. But regardless, the two of them go back to the train track to kind of uh, 
you know, mourn Doc. And all of a sudden, uh, the lightning strikes and a train comes on the track. The doors open and it turns out it's Doc Brown in a train time machine. There's Clara. And lo and behold, two young boys, Jules and Vern. Right. We kind of didn't mention this, but that's one of the things that Doc and Clara bond over is their love of Jules Vern. And that's something that didn't come up in parts one or two, that Doc really loves Jules Vern. But that's fine, because why would it have? But right, they named their kids Jules and Vern. We only see them on screen for a second. If you want to see more adventures of Jules and Vern, you could watch the Back to the Future animated series, which ran for two seasons and also featured Marty and Doc. But Jules and Vern were main characters in that as well. But this is where everything kind of ties up. Doc gives Marty the picture of them standing next to the clock that they took in 1885. It says, your partner in time. And Jennifer shows Doc the facts from the future that used to say you're fired, but now is erased because Marty didn't get into that accident. And she says, what does that mean? And Doc says, of course it's erased. The future isn't written. Your future's whatever you make it, so make it a good one. And I read something where Robert Zemeckis or Bob Gale said like that line really sums up the whole trilogy. It sums up their feeling on life and love and time travel. The future is not written. Make it the best one you can make it. That is the lesson of the Back to the Future trilogy. Then Doc and his family take their train up into the sky. It flies away. We don't know where. We don't know when. And it's not a cliffhanger. He's going to go do whatever he is in time. But that is the end. The text on screen literally says the end. And we know that there's not going to be a part four. That's it. So, James, I will ask you for the final time about a Back to the Future movie. Does Back to the Future part three stand the test of time? Well, what more is there to say than this? Uh, This film received... An America Online Movie DVD Premiere Award for Best Special Edition DVD of the Year. In what year? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, you know, part three, you're right. It's the lesser child of, of the trilogy. It gets a little less love. Part one, it's the first one. It's, it's the only one people knew for five years. Part two, people have been waiting almost five years for. This one, we literally waited zero seconds after part two. It showed us a lot of this. It's the smallest of the three. I mean, just like part one, it's only in in two times. Uh, well, I guess it's in 1955, uh, 1885, then 1985. But um, it kind of always felt to me like uh, exactly what we talked about last week, that part two and part three were supposed to be one film, but it was a little too bloated, so they split it up into two. And while I've always felt that part two had a lot of real complex stuff, it always felt to me like Back to the Future Part Three was kind of act three of part two, kind of expanded a lot more. You know, we've talked about the music and Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. But really, Tom Wilson, this guy is so underrated. He is so good in this film. And you could argue that, oh, it's the same character, but it really isn't. 
you know, Buford Tennant, they're not the same guy. I don't think he's playing the same character every single time. No, I agree with that. Um, unfortunately, he did not become the uh, superstar that he should have been. But, you know, watching this film, I actually think this film stands the test of time really well. I mentioned it earlier, I didn't love as a kid the direction this film went and that it was a love story. I kind of wanted more of that summer blockbuster of part two. You definitely don't get that in part three. But, you know, I think it's a little bit more of a thinking man's uh, movie. And I do like the character changes that are made in this film, as opposed to some of the character changes in part two. I will say that I'm going to rank them in the order they came out, part one, part two, then part three. But it's a lot closer than it used to be. I think these films have aged very, very well. You know, this film, this trilogy, it stands the test of time. Uh, what do you think, Al? Part three, does it stand the test of time? Where does it rank in the trilogy? What do you think? I really agree with everything you're saying, James. As a kid, this was always my least favorite movie. I was so excited to do Back to the Future 1 and 2, and I was like, oh, and then we also have to do 3. But watching it again, I was like, you know what? This movie is really good. I kept mentioning all of the things in this movie that mirror back to the first movie. It does them in a way that doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like you have to watch this movie looking for Easter eggs. They're just there. They're callbacks that make sense. They take things that happened in the first movie and the second movie and they advance them, they twist them, they change them. And it's a classic love story that does feel slower than part two because part two is like manic with all the crazy things that happened. But it really does mirror the story of part one, and it's not a bad thing. This movie is slow compared to part two, but it's not slow. It's really not. Like, it moves at a good clip. The final scene of them on the train, it is just as thrilling as the climax of part one, I think. Um, I'm not a huge Western guy, so for me, like, oh, this one's the Western Oh, okay. I don't really love Westerns. You know, I said that when we watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm just never going to get super jazzed about watching a Western. But this one's fun, and it's also a sci-fi Western, and there have been a few of those. Uh, Remember that movie with Will Smith, Wild Wild West, and there was Cowboys and Aliens with uh, Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford? Sci-fi Westerns come around every now and again, and they're usually bad. I never saw Wild Wild West. I assume it was bad. Cowboys and Aliens was not great. That's like a hard genre to get right. This movie does it really well. I almost feel bad for kind of hating this movie as a kid. It's not a bad movie. It's the least good Back to the Future movie, I think. But it's still a really, really well done movie. There's no incest stuff. There's no attempted rapes. There's no... Things that were supposed to happen in 2015 that definitely did not happen in 2015. It's just like a a standard love story. Christopher Lloyd and Mary Steenburgen have great chemistry together. We also just get more of the relationship of Doc and Marty, which is great. Like, they're amazing together, and we get to see more of their friendship, and that's a really good thing. It ends on a strong note. If I had to choose which Back to the Future movie would I watch at any given moment, odds are it wouldn't be this one. But it's still a solid movie, and it definitely stands the test of time. And how would you rank the three films? One, two, three. 
You know, the, the difference between part one and part two versus part three is that part three has no uh, time correction. They're not sitting there trying to reset something that they messed up. The stakes are a little less. Like, I used to think, like, why don't they just wait five years until the first gas station pops up? Or why doesn't Doc just spend a year just refining some oil into gasoline? But still, part three, a lot of fun. And I'll say this, um, watching this uh, with my girlfriend, she actually ranked it part one was the best one. She actually liked part three better than part two, actually. You can find articles online that say that Back to the Future 3 is better than part two. You know, that's a little bit of like the hot take kind of a thing because, you know, most people think two is better. But some people really love three. And, and I see it. I get why. That's going to do it for us this week. That's the end of our Back to the Future trilogy. But we still got more good stuff coming. Next week, we are going to be talking about Point Break with our good friend Adam Pincus. He's coming back on the show to talk about Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze, and surfing. Well, indeed. So, as always, we want you to talk to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Head over to our website, testoftimepod.com. Click on that little button that says Merch. You can get merch with our show logo that says The Test of Time. You can also get merch with our new cover art with me as Doc and James as Marty and our cool Back to the Future-inspired new cover art. Slap that on a t-shirt. Slap that on a tank top for the summer. You'll look stylish. And, um... We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye, I'll see you next week. Get out of here, runt.